0: I am Katie Rich. I am here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hello. And with David Canfield. Hi. On this week's episode, we will get into the box office fate of West Side Story and what it means in the Oscar race. We'll talk about the Golden Globe nominations, which came back to maybe everyone's surprise, as well as the Critics' Choice Award nominations and the Indie Spirit nominations. We'll get into some of the films that we want Everyone to catch up on the way we have, including Encanto and Zola. And then we have two interviews. First with Franklin Leonard, the founder of The Blacklist and Vanity Fair contributor, who talks about this year's edition of The List, and Mike Feist, who plays Riff in West Side Story. We want to start by talking about the news that has broken my heart, but I feel like we can't get into uh, this episode without talking about, which is the West Side Story box office. Um, I think we all had reason to suspect that maybe would face an uphill battle. There's another variant going on. It's a musical. You know, you can all throw your reasons out there. But the the roughly 10 million box office, I think, was not what anyone was hoping for. And we can talk about why. But I think the biggest question is, after we were all so high on it as an Oscar frontrunner, does this box office change things for anybody? Do we expect it to factor into the awards race, which is the thing we all obsess about over here?
5: I don't think so. I mean, I think it's, it's getting nominated for tons of awards now. It's winning things the cinema score, I believe, was a a solid A. So people are liking what they're seeing. It's just not enough people are going to see it for, I think, a variety of reasons, one of which is talking to a friend who doesn't know musical theater that well. He had no idea that, like, somewhere and America were from West Side Story. He knew the songs a little bit, but just didn't know the show in a way. I assume everyone knows West Side Story. And um, I think part of the the problem here is that they marketed it with that assumption. Well, here's the event. We don't have to show you much about what the movie is. It's just Spielberg West Side Story done. Go see it. But maybe it needed a little more handholding, like something the greatest showman got where they had a viral marketing thing for that for months. And look how well that paid off. I mean, they're very different shows and very different music styles. But um, there is evidence that like a big, earnest musical at Christmas time can do really well. And West Side Story could still hold on. I mean, it could just have like a long, you know, long legs, but just not a huge opening.
0: Yeah, that was the thing that The Greatest Showman was famous for. It just kept playing and kept playing over the holidays. And like everyone came back in January and was like, oh, wait, this is a hit. So I don't know that this is going to follow the same trajectory, but there's some hope. (laughs) You guys are telling me that there's hope.
2: I think there's definitely hope, and we also just had this conversation a couple of weeks ago about King Richard and whether it would affect its chances. And the fact is that movies that are not spectacle in one way or another, and yes, I am including Lady Gaga and Jared Leto and House of Gucci as uh, a spectacle, yes, uh, aren't aren't hitting very well. Uh, it's just not the same measure that we've historically used for movies like this. But I think it's going to be fine <laughs> as an Oscar contender. I think it's doing very well. It's showing up on a lot of critics groups lists and top ten lists, and uh, it hit. Um, it's hit basically everything it's needed to hit so far.
3: And I do think this is probably not the place to to get into this, but it just it seems like we just can't compare. Yeah. releasing a movie now compared to before like i think the greatest showman is a good comparison but it's like the way people see movies is different now and maybe different forever than it was before the pandemic so yeah. you know the the whole language of calling it a failure I think is a little unfair, you know, when it just doesn't perform at the box office because we can't hold it to the standards we did before the pandemic. And and I agree, I don't think this affects its Oscar chances at all. But I I, I hope that, you know, the language sort of changes away around the way we we describe box office.
2: I also think for a movie like this, you know, this is one that, you know, Academy members are going to see (laughs) and they're not going to like penalize it for not being a hit. Getting enough people to see it will not be a problem in this movie's case. It could be for another title's case, maybe, but this is <laughs> Oscar written all over it, quite literally, in its history. I also think that, you know, those who celebrate
5: Christmas by going to the movies are those who celebrate not celebrating Christmas but by going mm-hmm. to the movies. This is a good, you know, many-quadrant kind of movie that, like grandma would like and maybe a kid would like and and so maybe people are just waiting you know mid-december is kind of oddly actually can be a quiet um box office time right before the holiday post thanksgiving um
0: we got too many presents to wrap it's too busy
5: yeah i i do think that like west side story not having as much of an international profile could ultimately hurt bottom lines but my, my, I saw someone, I think Emily Newsbaum from The New Yorker was tweeting this out this weekend when the box office numbers were coming in that like she just hopes that this isn't like after In the Heights didn't do well and Devin, Evan Hansen didn't do well and Tick Tick Boom doesn't seem to have made a ton of an impact on Netflix that um, this doesn't mean that studios will once again turn away from the movie musical. So I guess, as Emily said, Wicked is maybe the... Our last best hope.
0: <laughs> mm. Someone tweeted at me about *In the Heights* because we talked about it as such a as such a disappointment back in June, and it had the HBO Max factor in there, so we don't really know how that affected it. Um, but I think what we expected from moviegoers in June was different than what it is now. That was the you know the point where the vaccines were out, the new variants hadn't really started up, and I don't know if this is a te- another temporary moment of wondering about movie going, or if the the new reality that you guys were talking about earlier has sunk in more. But it does seem like *In the Heights* was the first evidence that things might not. Go back to normal the way we wanted it to. And now we've adjusted our expectations a little bit around West Side Story.
3: It's so tragic to me that In the Heights had to be this first test case in so many ways about what theatrical looks like. You know, that movie, I think if it came out at a different time, would have had a a very different um, path, you know, once it was released. And I think, yeah, it, it was just like we all. Kind of thought, oh, things are going to go back to normal. Everyone's going to go to the theater. And when that didn't happen, it, it's like that movie sort of got the blame. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think we're in a very different place now, for sure.
2: Its box office looks slightly impressive right now mm-hmm. <laughs> compared to a lot of these movies. I mean, it was on HBO Max and it had a bigger opening weekend than West Side Story. So. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, we were talking about West Side Story getting some nominations this week. And uh, In the Heights got one nomination uh, from our friends at the Golden Globes, um, which we have to talk our about. <laughs> I mean, our dear, dear friends who've never done a thing wrong, as far as we know. Um, David, we talked about this last week, that you went in person as, as, as our <laughs> sacrifice. You, you were our test case going to the Golden Globes announcement at the crack of dawn on Monday. <sighs> And we'll talk about the, the nominations in a bit. I think we all agree they were, um, you know, in some ways surprisingly good, maybe pretty safe. Um, but, David, what was it like just going to what was supposed to be a regular Golden Globes nominations announcement? Um, and then Snoop Dogg was there. So I guess maybe it didn't feel so normal after all.
2: So at about like 6.03 a.m., I felt genuinely depressed. I I, <laughs> I had an existential <laughs> moment of what am I doing here? There were like three four journalists
3: wow. on the tables
2: the broadcast pen was pretty sparse we were all just sitting in silence the music had stopped we were all waiting and it's like what are what are we waiting for <laughs> um but then the president of the hfba came out to start the nominations announcement and then when she announced snoop dogg it all kind of clicked for me and i my mood changed and I was like, oh, I I can enjoy this as a total farce. Um, And I did. It It was a wild, wild 10 minutes there. It was really grim, is how I would describe the whole affair, because they moved the press conference to a larger ballroom than where they used to hold it. It's now in the international ballroom. They had this enormous um breakfast buffet even by this organization's standards um <laughs> and it just felt like it was it was meant to be this huge lavish kickoff event um but nobody even in the room seemed to care and it just it, once snoop dog came out it's like they this is <laughs> this is what we're doing yeah A- and you know, then there were the questions asked of her by the few journalists who were there, and it just didn't seem like they were ready to have a real conversation about what they were doing or, or how perhaps absurd uh, some of it looked. Um, and the nominations themselves, which we can get into, were not that interesting either.
0: Yeah, well, it's, 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 you wonder which you would rather have, like a classic kooky Globes or they're nominating, um, I think we all talked about like Dear Evan Hansen being the bellwether for them, really uh, letting their freak flag fly. Or do you let them kind of do what they're trying to do, which is they know we're respectable now, we do everything. You kind of imagine they put a lot of work into making those nominations look like the status quo rather than
3: getting any attention for doing something strange.
1: Right. Dan?
3: I'm sorry, Richard, that uh, Dear Evan Hansen did not make the list because I know that's what you were hoping for.
5: I just, I sent them all those watches
3: <laughs> and nothing. Casts.
5: You sent lots of casts.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, exactly. It's
5: a cast-shaped watch. It's really <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that it was kind of brutal that that didn't get in there. Also, that In the Heights didn't get Best Motion Picture Musical or Comedy, but I guess because there were just so many musicals.
2: It was like a respectable lineup.
0: Yeah. And, you know, Anthony Ramos got in there um, for best actor in a musical, which I was just, you know, happy to see. You know, Cyrano gets attention. We, we Fans of Cyrano around here. The As I, I think I said to maybe just David, the only like weird snub I could spot was that Mitchell's versus the machines didn't make it into animated feature. But that's pretty low key. Like they're just they're towing the line otherwise.
3: Yeah. I mean, we have to wonder how much the new members, um, you know, influence this. They They're They do make up a large percentage of the group because the group started out very small. So, um, you know, I think it's okay to be, you know, optimistic that the improvements to the voting body are are real. The general feeling seems to be let's wait and see how this goes. I I I mean, they're really it's an uphill battle for them. So I do have some sympathy for them because, you know, the criticism has been so non stop of them. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, a lot of people feel like they should have just sat this year out. So I don't know how you you balance those two things when they don't want to become totally irrelevant by not doing anything. But also, you know, they they want to give people the the space they think people I don't know, need to, they, that they need to take. So it's, it's a hard line for them. But, I don't know, Snoop Dogg was, <laughs> doesn't seem to have helped their case at all. <laughs>
2: my, my other question is, have people just started tuning them out to, mm. in, to a degree that is not reversible? Um, mm. It does feel like once people took a step back and were like these approximately 100 random people wielding an enormous amount of influence on the Oscars race, we can just choose not to give them that platform. And that's what a lot of people seem to have done there was a LA Times report about the Critics' Choice Awards and <laughs> their own problems with, uh, vari- in various areas, and, and a reminder that no organization, especially in Hollywood, is perfect, but it does feel like at this point, there is a kind of willful effort on the part of the industry to just keep the HFPA in a corner. Um, a lot of studios did not tout their nominations um, from the HFPA, while more intently... Uh, promoting what they got from the Critics' Choice Award since they announced on the same day. And, And that to me felt like a real statement of we are going in this direction at least this year.
0: Yeah, it was really interesting uh, how silent my inbox was, because usually Mm -hmm. Golden Globe nominations morning has been like people emailing you beforehand asking if you'll take reactions. And then just this flood of emailed statements of thanks for the nominations. And there was nothing. I think we said Jessica Chastain uh, tweeted something about her Critics' Choice or about her uh, both nominations, Golden Globes and Critics' Choice. But
3: I I didn't see anything else. Did you guys? Um, I saw Cruella. Had Disney, a, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Disney Disney promoted it along with their Critics' Choice nominations. But uh, yeah, same with me, Katie. Uh, no emails about it from, from reps that morning, which is really interesting.
2: And I looked at the studio's Twitter accounts uh, <laughs> to gauge how they were playing it. And like on Netflix's Power of the Dog account or Lost Daughter account, uh, the Critics' Choice Awards noms were were noted and the Golden globe ones were not, which especially, which felt especially notable for, um, for lost daughter since Maggie Gyllenhaal got a best director nomination with the HFPA, which normally would be a huge thing for that film's campaign. Uh, And it was not even acknowledged by the film's campaign. Um, And then you have, um, I think West side story, which is also under the Disney umbrella with 20th century, they did promote both. Um, But even focus didn't, highlight Belfast's um globe noms it was only critics choice so
0: or you think of like Cyrano which got you know more attention from the globes and they did the critics choice like that would be a big victory for them but it's really sticking your neck out to to promote those nominations yeah and like whether it should be I think is I don't know I, I just can't decide if you if people should be ignoring this the way that they are or not
2: I think it's a good question
0: yeah And it seems pretty clear that when they do the awards, um, the same day as Critics' Choice in January, that it doesn't seem like it's going to be like a bunch of people dressing up in a ballroom. Like it's going to be pretty low key because I think the the process of trying to get people to show up for that would be pretty tricky. Yeah,
3: Yeah. I think that's very likely. I think it's probably something the members will get to go to. But I imagine more of like a small dinner or something like talent is going to go to the show that's being broadcast
2: yeah the the word yesterday was it will not be a celebrity driven event that was the the, (laughs) the, that was the statement
0: um was there anything from the critics choice nominations we want to highlight that we haven't gotten into despite my best efforts the green Knight did not get anything i promise i did my best uh as a voter in this organization um but yeah it's a lot of the same titles for golden globes It, it feels like some consensus emerging on with both of these lists
5: a couple interesting developments from both of these nomination lists is one that like if there was any doubt i I know that these are different groups than her in the academy i understand that but i think sometimes getting these publicly announced nominations can just put solidify a title in voters heads just saying the more
0: you say the name the more it it. It just seems real
5: so i think i think uh dune getting lots of things like and, and and villeneuve getting nominated in both that feels pretty significant for that, which I you know I think we there was not really much doubt that that would be a, a big contender, but um, given how well it w- did and was received. But like um, I, I sort of have been sitting on with this like pet theory that Villeneuve could just kind of break out and win Best Director um, as a kind of like, we've seen you, we saw your past movies, we like you, you know, um, thanks for the blockbuster And I don't know, I feel like that narrative has not dimmed any um, after the nominations uh, this week. Um, I also thought it was interesting that if anyone is kind of quietly paying attention to the Globes and what names it's pinged out into the universe as, like, contenders, that Ben Affleck is in there for the tender bar and supporting Mm -hmm. actor. um, Because I've, I've wondered about that. He definitely... You know, got some votes, not I think more for Last Duel at New York Film Critics Circle, but like um, he, he seems like an interesting one. And if it's not a celebrity driven event, you kind of well, so they're not trying to get Ben Affleck to show up to their show, hopefully with J-Lo um, on his side, at a side, but like it might be a legitimate, you know, care for the performance, um, which I think is interesting.
0: Uh, I, there was really that moment of suspense when Snoop Dogg was stumbling over Ben Affleck's name and, mm-hmm. and apologizing for it unlike with everyone else who just kind of blew past where I was like is it going to be for the last duel what if he gets nominated for the last duel and then it was the Tender bar which <laughs> makes more sense um, the other name that I paid attention to um, in both groups was Denzel Washington for the tragedy of Macbeth um, we've talked on this show about how that movie feels very quiet like it's not screening widely it's not just been you know working the circuit the way a lot of other festival movies have but uh, Denzel Washington he's got star power and it, that seems like it's pretty likely to carry him to the Oscars, too.
2: Yeah, I, I heard from inside um, <clears throat> A24 that the movie is playing really well with guild and Ampass voters. Um, that is the studio behind it. So take with a grain of salt, but it, it is possible that it's, you know, this bl- black and white, starry Shakespeare adaptation is, is hitting a certain segment of the industry in a way it needs to. And I, I think Denzel has proven over the past decade that he's become one of those actors who can really get in for for just about anything. And I think this is, it's considered a really strong performance of his. And if he got in for Roman J Israel, I just, I don't see how he, how he misses for playing Lord <laughs> Macbeth. I just, I don't, I don't know about that. Yeah. That one stood out to me. We, we talked a little bit about the reviews of don't look up and being the Ricardo's post uh, breaking at the same time. And while being the Ricardo's has kind of faded in the best picture conversation. As a result, don't look up is really stuck around and um, it's, You know, both AFI and Critics' Choice, which are pretty different groups, named it in their top 10, which were actually Mm -hmm. identical, save for Belfast not being eligible for the AFI. Um, So it feels like so far everyone who's voting on these 10 have the same 10 in mind. And I I wonder if there is room for a surprise. Uh, I feel like with the Academy, there usually is. Um, But it's hard to say what it is at this point.
3: Uh, really excited to see Coda do so well. I yes, think. Me too. Yeah, that was one we all kind of felt like was on the bubble. Um, but it, you know, it, it made it into the Critics' Choice best picture and Globes. So. I think that's really exciting, and and I feel like it now is going to make it in the ten for Oscar. And then, um, the other thing I noticed was uh, Nightmare Alley did quite well with Critics' Choice. I think it got eight, and obviously we knew it was going to go in crafts. Um, but you know, to get into picture and directing is also great. But you know, as we've kind of been debating, uh, none of the actors got nominated, so I do think maybe that's fading as any actor potential
2: in yeah, there. But I, th- I think Kate would have needed a boost yesterday. Yeah. You know.
0: In terms of surprises from these picture lists, especially, I've been thinking about The Lost Daughter, which, as you said, got that nomination for Maggie Gyllenhaal, but not in the drama category at the Golden Globes um, and wasn't in the best picture list from the Critics' Choice either. But in uh, the Indie Spirits, which got nom- uh, announced this morning as we record this, it did really well. It showed up in a lot of places. And again, different voting body. Um, but like what Richard was saying, the more you say a title out loud, the better it can do. So I, I wonder if that's the kind of thing that might sneak into an Oscar 10 that um, that's not showing up as strongly. Here.
2: To me, it feels like the one that would, you know, a more critically driven, smaller movie, which acad- the Academy will tend to go for. The Critics' Choice may call themselves the Critics' Choice, but they tend to go with a very mainstream set of nominations, sure. let's say. And I think this year that really proved more true than ever, uh, just like... Oscar predictions list down the line. That's what all those categories really look like. Um, And Lost Daughter is is a weirder movie. It's a darker movie. But all indications are it's playing well to industry voters. And if there's enough passion for it, I could see it figuring it. I I just don't know which movie it would kick out, to be honest.
0: Yeah. Um, I think the other question is uh, foreign language titles. You know, we're not seeing Parallel Mothers or a Hero factor in here at all, Um, both of which I think... Given the international makeup of the Academy, we've kind of had our eye on. So I would be um, I would not be surprised if one of those snuck into a Best Picture 10 as well.
2: Or Drive My Car.
0: Or Drive My Car or New York Film Critics Circle. Um, also, didn't the L.A. Film Critics uh, give it the top? Boston. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's that feels like one of the screener pile movies. People are going to be like, OK, I got three hours. I'm going to watch this. Possibly me included. So before we get into uh, the interview portion of our show, um, I just wanted to quickly let us all talk about things we've been watching because um, we've talked about a lot of these movies over and over again throughout the season. But I keep finding there's something that I see and I'm like, oh, wait, I haven't gotten into this at all. Um, I wanted to do this because I finally saw Encanto, the uh, Disney animation movie with – songs from Limo and Miranda, who was just having a real amazing year, um, that I really fell for and my kids have fallen for as well. Um, so it's, you know, it's a kind of classic Disney year in animation where there's the Pixar movie Luca and then there's the Disney animation movie Encanto. And I don't have a great read on which one would have an edge in an animated race, and it might be Mitchell's versus the machines in the end. Um, but I really liked Encanto and wanted to, to shout it out for anyone who was on the fence about seeing it. Um, do any of you guys have something that you wanted to recommend to our listeners or to each other.
5: I think it might be the exact opposite of Encanto. <laughs> um, but there is a movie that I believe Metrograph is releasing from its like distributor label. Um, which Metrograph is like a an kind of art theater in art house theater in uh, Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, it's called Last and First Men. And it is a film from uh, the com- who we mostly know as a composer, uh, Johan Johansson, who died a few years ago um, after doing some really um, memorable scores uh, for a lot of cool films. It's an adaptation of a 1930 novel sci-fi about the people of many, 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 many thousands of years from now, kind of like sending a message back to us. It's narrated by Tilda Swinton. It's all of this black and white photography of... Oh, this building complex in I believe Eastern Europe. Um it, it's it's very much an art film, but with um yeah, it's in the Balkans. It was filmed in the Balkans, sorry. With Tilda Swinton narrating, it, it, it there is a, a sort of access point. And anyway, it's just like a 70-minute kind of sound and image bath um, that if you um, are, you know, home with your family over the holidays and it's playing near you and you just want to go feel arty and black sheepy for, for a, a, a little over an hour, um, I would recommend it. It's a really interesting film, Last and First Men.
0: Yeah, you send the rest of the family to Encanto and you go hang out with Tilda Swinton. Because you're, you're too smart. cool for that kiddie stuff. <laughs> um david or becca have you guys been catching anything or um is there anything that we have missed
3: that you want to endorse katie since you brought up the animation race i feel like um i want to put a plug for a film that came out a while ago but ryan the last dragon was my favorite animated movie and i think the animation race is going to be quite intense this year um and so, you know, I, I felt that movie was very special and, and I'm sure people have a way to see it now. So that that's something I saw a long time ago, but I do think it was one of my favorites.
0: Yeah, the amount of stuff I've gotten in the mail for Raya and The Last Dragon mm-hmm. is any indication the race is intense,
3: <laughs> maybe <laughs> only
0: getting more intense.
2: Yeah. And for me, I saw the movie Test Pattern, which I hadn't seen, um, directed by Shatara Michelle Ford. It was nominated for Best Picture at the Gothams and I'd never heard of it. And I was pretty knocked out by it. It's a debut. Uh, it follows an interracial couple who um, have a kind of harrowingly realistic odyssey <laughs> uh, go on one together. And it's it's really powerful and surprising and a really impressive movie. And I can't wait to see more of what she has to offer. So, yeah, I would recommend that one.
5: Well represented at the Spirits,
2: too, I think. Yes. Yes, yes. yes I was just was. say.
5: Yeah. Um, So, Katie, if I can just pivot to TV really quick, um, I'm writing a review right after we record this of the show Station Eleven, which is going to be on HBO Max uh, this coming Sunday. Uh, It, similar to Last and First Men, is a sort of beautiful but sad look at the end of humanity, or at least a lot of humanity, but it's really interesting. Uh, Hiro Murai did a lot of the uh, well, set the kind of visual tone, directed a couple episodes. Uh, Patrick Somerville, who did Maniac with Emmett Stone a few years ago, um, adapted Emily St. John Mandel's book, which is a lovely, lovely book that people should read if they haven't, Station Eleven. Um, anyway, it's, it's, um, it's a really interesting show to come out right now, because it is about a flu that kills most of the world, and it's about the people both in the early days of that that pandemic, and then twenty years later, and, and about how um, life endures and art endures and love, you know, finds each other, and, and it's um it's a different kind of look at apocalypse or post-apocalypse. It's very different from say Walking Dead. They've amped up the violence and tension for the show than than uh, more so than is in the book. But um, Station Eleven is really really interesting television. If you want something sort of leftovers adjacent, but with a more fantastical bent.
0: Yeah, I loved that book um, and i have been really excited about the show. And also, we understand it continues the year-long trend of TV characters talking about Vanity Fair, which we're always um, <laughs> That's excited
5: right. about. Yeah, um, we have three mentions of succession. There's one mention in Station 11. We're doing well. And they're do, all positive mentions, I think.
0: Do we return the phone calls of the guy in Station 11, unlike Kendall Roy, apparently?
5: <laughs> well, right. Yeah, Exactly.
0: Um, yeah, I was. I, I, apparently, it's not implied that we survive the apoc- That the Vanity Fair and makes it through the apocalypse, which I guess I understand. But I would, I would like to be the only magazine left on Earth. If anyone can
3: <laughs> can arrange that for so us, it,
0: um, I was going to add one more thing. Uh, pivoting off the Spirit Awards too, and we've talked about this movie, but it's been a while. But Zola did really well mm. at the Indie Spirits, and um, you know, I keep thinking that like a screenplay nomination for that should be a really big campaign. And I don't. Totally get why it hasn't got off the ground, and maybe the indie spirits will be an uh, opportunity for it to jump back. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, um, watch Zola Like it is such a uh, fascinating movie, and then. Great contrast to a lot of the other stuff that's out there. So I hope it maybe brings some more eyeballs back that direction.
5: If this is an enticement, it was, I saw it at Sundance in 2020 and it was kind of that whole year when I thought back about stuff I'd written, it was the most, one of the most interesting things to write about Mm -hmm. uh, Zola. It's, it's just doing so much in a very peculiar and subtle way you know that means that some people aren't going to like it they're not going to connect to it which is fine but it's really an interesting movie that subverts expectations um and features some great performances i think especially domingo
0: um, yeah, and I actually learned from looking at the Indy Spirit nominations that it was shot by Arya Wegner, who is also the cinematographer for The Power of the Dog. Like, what an incredible yeah. combination of movies to have mm-hmm. in a single year. Um, and David, who has jumped off the line now, uh, spoke to uh, Arya Wegner and Jane Campion both for a piece on that movie, um, On Power of the Dog, that you should read. <laughs> So now let's listen to the conversation that David and I had with Franklin Leonard, a returning guest on the show. He's a Vanity Fair contributor and the founder of The Blacklist. And we were speaking to him about this year's edition of The Blacklist, which came out earlier this week. As usual, it it contains an incredibly fascinating array of screenplays, which are more or less the most popular unproduced screenplays in Hollywood. Not necessarily the best. They just poll the people who have access to such things about what they're most intrigued by. Um, But it can be a huge boost to uh, the screenplays themselves and more likely the writers. You know, A lot of These movies may never actually get made, but they will introduce you to a lot of hugely promising talents. So let's listen to our conversation about it. So now David and I are joined by Franklin Leonard, a previous guest on this show. And uh, well, first of all, hi, Franklin. Uh, Thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me back.
0: Um, We brought you in to talk about all kinds of stuff on the show before, but this is the first time that you have come in to talk about The Blacklist, which is truly your baby, um, because the new one is out right now. Um, And we planned this months ago because I was excited to talk to you about this year's edition and kind of talk about it right away. So uh, first of all, how does it feel to have uh, The Blacklist out yet again? The the clock turns over.
4: It feels good to be done with it. Um, I've been joking for a while now that if I could do it all over again, I don't know that I'd do the most important thing of my year at the end of the year. Um, <laughs> it's sort of not great for scheduling and sort of mental health, but but it's over now. And, and that's a good thing. Um, and look, there, there are a lot of really fun scripts on the list this year. And I think like everybody, uh, I will read a bunch of them over the holidays, which is why even if I wanted to change it, I probably shouldn't. It probably should come out on the last Monday before everyone goes on vacation so everybody can read the scripts over the holidays, and then hopefully these things will be more likely to get made in the new year.
0: What actually happens behind the scenes when everyone gets those scripts? Because, you know, it's a it's blacklist. It's a list of like the most like scripts that are basically, you know, floating around town. So when you yeah. see this list, like, do you call your agent to call the other agents to get a hands on the scripts? How does that work?
4: So I think what happens now very quickly when the list comes out, you know, diligent junior development executives manage to gather all of the scripts, right? They're all circulating. Part of the reason why people have seen them before is that they've circulated via email because somebody reads them and shares them with a friend who has a similar job and says, "Oh my God, this is amazing! You should check it out." So someone usually gathers them all together um, and and makes those available to their professional peers. Um, in my case, part of the fact checking process for the list is making sure that the agents who represent the right Send me a copy of the script so that I know it actually exists and it's not some (laughs) sort of weird, uh, like someone's trying to trying to put one over on us. So I have them already um, yep. and I'm able to read them uh, over the holidays. But I think everyone sort of gathers the scripts that sound interesting to them based on the log lines, the things that are available if you're a producer, the writers that are not represented if you're a representative um, and reads them over the holidays in the hopes of finding something amazing that you know you can sort of come into 2022 really excited about. Um, and again, I think that's one of the reasons why The Blacklist became a thing is that you know at the end of the year, everyone's taking stock. Everyone's trying to figure out what their next year looks like. And to have a menu of things that a bunch of people have said are really good is a really good way to, like, you know, figure it out. It's super efficient, which is ultimately the reason why I started in the first place. I was like, I'm going on vacation. I want to read some good scripts. How do I do that?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. One thing I'm curious about with The Blacklist is, particularly the last few years, highlights uh, f- that we we know of, of course, you know, this year, movies like King Richard were on The Blacklist originally. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the balance for you between... You know, obvious highlights and and getting maybe scripts that are, are would get a little bit less would would take a little bit more um, energy perhaps to get to get attention and, and getting people who aren't as known uh, on the radar.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think what's really fascinating, what has always been really fascinating to me about the list is that it's virtually impossible to predict sort of where the like if, if you asked me mid year what scripts would be on the list, I, I couldn't tell you, and I don't think anybody necessarily could. Mm-hmm. And even with the list, I can say that. You know a bunch of people really like each of the scripts on the list. That's how they got on the list which ones are going to get made and be successful. I know that on average and Harvard business school has validated this, right. That like they will be on average more successful than any group of scripts you could assemble. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But which ones ultimately end up being the thing that everybody loves. I can't say that I have any idea, you know, King Richard's a a really recent example of something that when it was on the list, it was like, Oh, someone wrote a biopic of Venus and Serena's dad, Richard, without the rights to it. Right, like when that script was written, th- they had no path to getting it made because how do you get that movie made without Venus and Serena and Richard's approval, right? right. Um, and and the Blacklist, you know, probably helped catalyze their attention and like, well, it must be good. We should probably check it out. Rather than, hey, someone wrote a script about your dad. You should read it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, one of the things that still kind of blows my mind is that Succession was was really birthed by a script that was on the Blacklist hmm. in two thousand eight or two thousand nine by Jesse Armstrong about Rupert Murdoch, and. I I remember at the time thinking well that's a fascinating sample that will never get made right it was it was Rupert Murdoch gathering his children together who, to decide who he would give the company to sort of King Lear style and obviously that movie didn't get made but the, the contours of it are obvious in succession so it, it's virtually impossible for me to predict I think that there are every year when I read the log lines of the scripts that are on the list the vast majority of them are things that I'm like yeah I'd see that. Like, I I don't Mm -hmm. know how it's going to go. I don't know if it'll be good. And and these are big swings that will also be big misses and failure. But I'm curious. Um, and, And so and I think that's the thing that sort of, you know, binds these things together. They're big swings. Someone said, I'm going to try to write something that on its face is going to sound wild. Most of these are what people that pulled it off. Um, But there's a lot of decisions that get made in between a screenplay and and making a movie. And so it doesn't mean that they're going to be good. It just means that there's likely a higher hit rate because a bunch of people who know something said, you know what, this is one of the things that I most loved this year.
0: There's a lot of biopics on this year's list, too. I was kind of keeping track mm. of them as I went through it. There's a Martin Shkreli yeah. one. There's uh, Kanye making College Dropout. There's Trump uh, seemingly ending with the 2011 Correspondence Center, which is fascinating. Uh, yep. Shostakovich and Dennis Rodman. I mean, yep. obviously, there's what you're talking about where it's a, you know, it's a wild swing. But is that also a way, if you're an aspiring screenwriter, to get your script noticed to be like, hey, I'm going to write about something really bold and people are going to want to pick it up. And then I can show them what I can do from there.
4: No, I think you you nailed it. I mean, the the biopic phenomenon on the blacklist has existed for as long as the list has. Um, I mean, you know, looking back, there was a year where there were two Mr. Rogers biopics on the same list, two Steven Spielberg biopics on the same list. There have been George Lucas biopics, Hillary Clinton biopics. Um, And and yes, I think that if you're a writer... um, you you can do worse than choosing a subject that someone already has an emotional connection with and then nailing it, because when when I when somebody when an agent pitches you that script, hey, do you want to read a screenplay about Hillary Clinton when she was working for the committee to impeach Nixon and was dating this guy named Bill Clinton and was trying to decide whether to move to Arkansas? Yeah, send me that script. I'm going to read it tonight. Right? Do you want to read a script uh, that's basically a Michael Jackson biopic but told from the perspective of his chimp Bubbles? Yeah, I'm going to re- send that over. I'm going to read it tonight. And I think that a lot of these these scripts, you know, fall in that category, whether it be the Martin Screlly biopic or Dennis Rodman's 48 Hours in Vegas or the story of the Michael Jordan Nike deal, right? These are all things that sort of we have some concept about. We have some emotional connection to the story. And then if you tell it well, of course, you're going to come out of that as a reader saying, oh, my God, maybe we should do something with this.
0: I definitely couldn't help imagining the licensing uh, paperwork of making that Nike movie. Like, I don't even know how in the world you start getting the rights for
4: that. Yeah, I, I guess you probably have to get Nike involved, but then, like, how accurate is the story? I mean, I, the, these are the challenges with, with with biopics, certainly of living figures, and I don't even know what you do with sort of, like, arguably the world's most recognizable brand. Yeah.
2: Hmm. Uh, conversely, is there anything about this list that was maybe a little bit more surprising to you, some stuff popping more than usual, or, or less, I suppose?
4: Um, I don't know that anything necessarily surprises me anymore. I think that... Um, <laughs> Look, I think that we're we're seeing one trend that I guess I can't really explain is there were a few there were a few scripts that sort of could loosely be ca- like described as, "Hey, I used to have this old life as a criminal, an assassin, whatever, and now I'm trying to have a suburban life by having a kid or like you know going straight, and then mm. I'm drawn back into my old life somehow. I don't know where that trend is coming from, right? Like th- there have been years, for example, where there were a lot of scripts about systemic corruption or women taking ultra judicial, you know, women seeking ultra uh, extra judicial judicial justice." Right. And it's like, okay, it's very obvious where in the culture these things existed. Or even last year, there were a lot of scripts about, you know, people stuck alone on spaceships or stuck alone in in the wilderness. And it's like, okay, clearly the pandemic is affecting the stories that people are are writing and, and liking. I don't know where this like I used to be a criminal and now I'm being drawn back into this life despite my best efforts uh, trend comes from. But um, but that was definitely one that I detected that I don't know that I could have predicted. And then honestly, a lot of comedy this year, Hmm. a lot of comedy sort of baked into the idea of. Two people trying to engage in their normal lives, and then wild things happen. So, like a father-son dinner that spins errant, and two people have to survive. A grinder date that goes bad and is, uh, you know, sort of uh, interrupted by an alien invasion. That is one that I, I really hope gets made, just based on the premise alone. It just yeah. feels like a no-brainer movie. Yeah. Um, so, I, I and again, I don't know where those trends come from. I do think that you know a lot has been said about how we want and need. Joy, laughter at this time, and maybe you know writers are are feeling the same thing and sort of trying to write those stories now. Um, you know, I, I think I'm very pro good comedy. I'm very pro laughing. So if it makes it more likely that these things get made, hooray!
0: Something you've talked about a lot on Twitter and probably on this podcast, too, is the idea that you know, Hollywood ignoring diversity is leaving money on the table, like that there are so many stories to tell for so many different groups of people. And I think you do see some of that emerging in these scripts, like the Grinder script you were talking about. There's one that I think is a comedy, too, about like a homecoming weekend at Howard University. Yeah. Do you feel like the, you know, the blacklist is really just people voting on their favorite, so it's not any kind of like objective look at the future, but do you feel like it's taking the temperature of a Hollywood that is paying a little bit more attention to a broader range of stories than maybe 10 years ago?
4: absolutely I, you know I think that the annual list remains just a snapshot of what everyone in Hollywood is reading and liking and so it is going to reflect the biases that exist within the industry as a whole and if you look historically the easiest way for me to look at it is is the number of women writers that have been on the list over the last 17 years you know um, even though in the first year uh, Diablo Cody and and, and Nancy Oliver uh, were two and three on the first list there were not a lot of women writers on the list early on and and slowly but surely over the last last 5 to 6 years you've seen the, that number creep up to 35 40% of the scripts on the list uh, and a lot of scripts about female protagonists too so you do see change over time there were two trans uh, scripts about with trans leads on last year's list for example which inarguably is progress mm-hmm. um, so i think you are seeing that but but i think that it's funny my realization that Hollywood was leaving money on the table when it comes to diversity actually came about as a result of the blacklist. Um, because there are all these assumptions about what audiences want to see, right? Like, they, they want to see young, white, straight dudes saving the world. That's sort of the default assumption. Um, and then there's sort of like, you know, corollaries that sort of run alongside that. But the reality is, if you look at the scripts in the Black West historically, and I referenced this Harvard Business School study earlier, they are the weird things, right? They are Slumdog Millionaire, Spotlight, uh, The King's Speech, all these things that... Don't have to do with gender or race or, or sexuality representation, but they are not things that conform to the assumption about what makes money in Hollywood. Harvard Business School says scripts on the blacklist controlling for all other factors make 90% more in revenue than scripts that were not on the blacklist hmm. when they're made in, into movies, which maybe says that like Hollywood's ability to judge what's profitable, what audiences want to see is fundamentally flawed. All these sort of assumptions that we make are, are really just, you know, all convention and no wisdom. Um, whereas what I think we know is good story, well told, doesn't matter what the identity of the lead is. Doesn't even necessarily matter if it's like anything we've seen before. But if it's a good story, well told, audiences are going to show up. And I think we see this over and over and over again, whether it's Black Panther, more recently with Squid Game, right? Like audiences do did not say, I don't know about Squid Game, as a Korean guy in the lead. They just said, I don't know, everybody says it's amazing, I should probably check it out. And, you know, it's arguably the biggest television show of all time. So I just think that we as an industry have to do a real gut check about how we value these stories. And I think historically we've been very bad at doing it when it comes to gender race and otherwise, but just when it comes to what a good story is and what audiences are interested in seeing.
0: I gotta say the one about the uh, African uh, uh, samurai in feudal Japan, uh, which is apparently yeah. based on a true story. That one is just like sign me up. Like that's that's a story so, I haven't seen
4: before. Interestingly, the Yasuke story is one. There have been many scripts about uh, that historical figure that have circulated oh, really? Hollywood for years, and it still hasn't gotten made yet. Um, and I think that probably reflects, uh, you know, a, a certain level of bias that oh, I don't know if we can make the story about the African samurai in Japan. It's like, well, there are a lot of black people in the world. They're a lot of Japanese people in the world. And not only that, there are a lot of people that are neither black nor Japanese that will watch that movie very excitedly if the movie is good. A lot of swords. Um, people love swords. People love sword and sandal stuff. <laughs> it, it, it it can pretty consistently works, right? Um so I I think there's a lot. There's a lot there. And I, I and look selfishly, as a moviegoer, as an audience member, I'm just psyched about seeing as many different good things as possible, right? Like, that is the joy of of watching movies, watching television, is the opportunity to see the world in a way you haven't seen it before, to be entertained, to feel something. And I think the more different kinds of storytellers and the more different kinds of stories that we get well-supported, the better off we're all going to be. How do you see uh, the blacklist functioning
2: in what can be described as a very rapidly uh, changing industry with the pandemic and streaming taking such a huge role uh, in in the development of movies so quickly, um, does the avenue to getting these films made change? The strategy of how they move forward change? What does that look like?
4: You no, know, I think it's a really good question. I think that look, there. I think there are always going to be movies. At the end of the day, it's it's a it's a story told in sort of uh, you know in film fashion that that lasts probably between an hour and a half and three hours long. Uh Um, Some of these scripts, though, will come back as television series. In several years, I have very little doubt that we'll have another conversation and we'll be talking about scripts that were on the 2021 Blacklist that are now either limited series or ongoing series Mm. on a streaming platform. And, And, you know, I mentioned Succession earlier. There was a script from... I think it was right around 2008, 2009, um, about the Alexander Litvinenko uh, assassination uh, that just sold to HBO as a limited series starring Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, So, I, I actually think that if there's a big change, that's probably what it is, is that you have these feature scripts that were written to be features, and people will read them and say what if it's not a feature? Because maybe the economics don't make sense around a one episode thing. But what if we made seven episodes of the same story and really blew it out and got further into the details? Because that's the thing that's really compelling. Mm. Um, I think you're going to see more and more of that over time. And I think at the end of the day, look, we're heading towards a convergence where at the end of the day, it's all just, you know, ideally brilliantly scripted storytelling. Is it one season, one episode, a movie? Or is it, you know, one season, seven episodes? Is it an infinite number of seasons, 20 episodes, like law and order. Um, It it really is just how do you, what is the story you're trying to tell and how do you tell it in a way that is going to be most arresting and and probably brings with it the largest audience for the longest amount of time. You know, I I, I still bristle about the sort of distinction between film and television at this stage uh, of sort of the the evolution, like the, the MCU, right? Are those a series of movies and television series? Are they one giant storytelling universe where the movies are just part are, are one episode of a broader episodic series? You know, if they had released the final season of Game of Thrones in theaters, would that have been a succession of 10 movies or would it still have been a, a television show? I don't know. That's probably blasphemous in some people's eyes. At the end mm-hmm. of the day, I just want good stuff well told. And if it justifies being projected forty feet high, I will probably pay to watch it projected forty feet high. Um, I just want it to be good stories well told.
0: David, which one of these movies do you most want to see?
4: The one that immediately
2: no, the one that immediately caught my eye. I admittedly was um, the Mass Singer. <laughs> With, okay. Mickey R- with Mickey Rourke <laughs> descending into a reality TV <laughs> infused uh, madness. Um and, and that one also was really the, good. That one was really good. And I think it was one of the most um cited, but the um the one about the wrestler uh, battling the ear infection was pretty fascinating to me. That as is well. the
4: num- that yeah, cauliflower, that is the number one script, yeah, this yeah, year. It's um, quite a log line. It is quite the logline, and I, it, it, I, I have to assume it's brilliantly executed because, like you said, it is right. quite the logline, and it's very easy to imagine that being terrible. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So <laughs> the fact that 32 people said it was one of their favorite things of the year says something because the logline is a bit of an overcome, for sure.
0: I had the same thought um, about the Hufflepuff love story because Harry Potter fan fiction is rampant everywhere. But for it, for a script version of it to make a list like this, you know, Harry, this is one of the ones that I imagine will be very difficult and not impossible to ever make. But yeah. uh, the idea of wrestling Harry <laughs> Potter away from its creator and having fun with stories like that on screen is very intriguing. So I'd love to read that.
4: Uh, yeah, I, I, I was surprised to find what what sounds like Harry Potter fan fiction uh, as, as one of the most beloved screenplays in the industry, for sure.
0: You never know what's going to pop up on the Blacklist. But it's
4: actually, but but interestingly, there was another Harry Potter-related script on last year's Blacklist, a script called The Boy Who Died by Manisha Dadlani. Um, the logline of which was, a young girl creates a robot version of Harry Potter while her father simultaneously is treating Harry Potter star Daniel Radcliffe for terminal disease, (laughs) right? So like, I I think people, I I think that one of the things that people do do and I think it's it's a really easy way, not an easy way, but it's an effective way to sort of make to attract attention is to take these things that people are already curious about or have an interest in, or and and then flip them in some radical way, um, right? Like there's a there's a there's a biopic script of William Hung from American Idol on this year's list, right? Um, and and that. I think there's a lot there because I think we all remember the William Hung phenomenon, and I think if we think about it in the context of 2021, there's a lot there that was not okay, and part of the reason why he became a celebrity were not things that I think all of us are comfortable with now. And I think if that if that script explores those things, it could be really interesting. And I think if you had called me, you know, when I was a junior development executive and said, "Hey, I have a script about William Hung," I would have said. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, again, I'll read the first 30 pages. And and if you carry off this, those 30 pages, I'm definitely going to read to the end. And if you carry it off, it's the kind of thing that the next morning when I go into breakfast, I'm going to have a conversation with the person that I'm meeting with and say, You know, I read the weirdest thing last night. And that person's going to say, Oh my God, you should send it to me. I would love to read it too. And I think that's a, a lot of times how these scripts end up very popular um, and how these writers then sort of make a name for themselves and end up writing the things that, you know, even if that script doesn't get made, they end up hired to write other things that most definitely will, that we all most definitely enjoy.
0: Um, so maybe this is a question to close it out, because you mentioned at the beginning, you know, at the end of the year, taking stock and assessing the year. And, you know, you're the person who I always turn to being like, what's actually happening in the industry at this point? So at the end of 2021, like, you feel like we're getting there? Is Hollywood coming back or are you seeing signs of, of hope for our post-pandemic Hollywood future?
4: I mean, look, I, I think that the first the first part of that question is, is like, what does a post-pandemic look like? Uh, like, how Are we post-pandemic are we? also? Yeah. <laughs> how, how close are we to being post-pandemic? And I think the honest answer is that none of us really know. I remain incredibly hopeful about the future of Hollywood. Um, you know, I don't know what the theatrical business looks like coming out of the pandemic. I think that it's probably irrevocably affected. What that means, like positively or negatively, I don't know. Um, and I think that that's, that's really going to be determined by, you know, policy around the pandemic, how the industry responds to that policy and sort of makes it a desirable experience for people to leave their homes and sit in a room with a bunch of people that they don't know and and watch a movie. I'm fascinated by how streaming is allowing some things to catch fire with what feels like almost overnight and go global instantly. Um, and like I mean, Squid really, Game? Like Squid Games probably is the most obvious example. But I mean, Ted Lasso really on some level sort of happened near, felt like it happened near instantaneously as well. And, and so I'm really hopeful about the ways in which things that maybe we don't expect to become part of the culture in a sort of really important way or in a really global way, uh, have the ability to do that. And I think that fundamentally, I just, I'm lucky in that I get to spend a lot of time in community with wildly talented storytellers. And I think that when you spend time with people like that, it's very difficult to be pessimistic about the future of the art form, because I know that these amazing people are going to make amazing stuff for all of us to watch. And so how am I going to bet against the art form when I know that these amazing people are going to do Dope Sit, even if I don't know what it is yet. So I remain optimistic, possibly naively, but without any clear sense of what the specifics look like. But do I believe that there are going to continue to be brilliantly scripted stories that we're all going to be able to consume from brilliant artists that are going to change the way we look at ourselves and each other in the world? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if people are smart and can build a business model around that, we'll be able to sustain it and grow it for a very long time.
0: Well, that's what the blacklist proves, right? No matter how many of these movies get made, knowing that people are thinking in this way and coming up with this stuff is kind of proof that there's reason to have hope.
4: Yeah. Every year we put out a list of things that whether they get made or not are reasons for excitement. And some of them will get made. Many of those will do very well. I think the real challenge is the, the real challenge is not: Are there great artists out there who will make great things? There are. That has been true for as long as film and television has existed. The real question is: Is that are the people who are currently running the industry, running the companies that rep- that are the industry, are they the best people equipped to manage the radical transformation that is happening technologically, the changes that are happening in terms of how audiences are consuming these stories, and frankly, to best make decisions about what things to make to serve an audience that is increasingly global, has always been diverse, and is always going to be interested in great stuff that reflects them and other people. And I would argue that over the course of the film and television industry, the people who have run it have not been the best people to do that. The people who are running it now are not the best people to do that. And the success of the future of film and television will be contingent on the people who are the right people being able to have the opportunity to to lead the way. And again, knowing some of the people who should be taking that mantle, I'm very excited about the future. I think the question is, will space be made for them to lead us to the promised land?
0: Mm. Ooh, what a great way to end the year. Having you talk about this. Stuff. <laughs> just come and give us the big picture while we are all stuck. talking mean, about Oscar
4: buzz. <laughs> I, look, who know, look, who knows if I'm right. I, I just, that's, that's my instinct. I just know that there are, there are incredible folks who, who can do amazing things who haven't yet had the opportunity, uh, that they deserve to, to be amazing, uh, and to have the resources necessary to do what they do. And I think that when you start to see that happen, you get things like Ava DuVernay and Array, and right? Yeah. And, and yeah. Ava's certainly singular, but there are a bunch of people who, who function at that level. And I think if they get the resources uh, that they need to do what they can accomplish, we're all going to be a hell of a lot better off. <laughs>
0: And finally, now let's hear my conversation with Mike Feist, who is my beloved, uh, dear standout from West Side Story. He plays Riff. Um, I was so excited by his performance and so delighted to get to talk to him. He was really as lovely as I would have hoped and kind of taking in the mayhem of being in this huge movie um, and reflecting on what happened to him when he was in Dear Van Hansen on Broadway and how it was a, a different kind of attention, but maybe a way of experience with a spotlight that informed what he's going through right now. Um, I'm always just interested in catching up with people as they get this glimpse of fame uh, as it all begins. And hopefully he's at the beginning of much more of it. So let's listen to that interview. Yeah, I really just wanted to start by asking how you are, because it's been, I guess I saw the movie at the beginning of last week, uh, as did most people, and it's been pretty nonstop since then. So how, uh, how are you doing?
1: Pretty good. Hanging out. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm back in Ohio uh, right now, hanging out with family, you know, and for the holidays and just kind of getting some respite and, you know, just trying to get errands and things like that, you know, back to normal life, <laughs> things like that. You know?
0: Is that where you are most of the time now? I think you did an interview earlier this year saying you were heading there mostly full time.
1: I sold my apartment over the summer uh, in New York in Brooklyn. Yeah. And I've been in Ohio, um, mostly dealing with, um, you know, just uh, pandemic and, and, and family stuff and just trying to yeah. be supportive here and, uh, you know, help out where I can. And, uh, you know, until I, uh, figure out what's kind of, uh, next for me, I guess. Yeah.
0: Does it feel helpful when you're doing something as crazy as, like, a world premiere of your movie uh, to go back to something more normal than, I don't know, like being in a theater or riding the subway? Like, does it feel like a a better break from all this craziness?
1: I don't know. Uh, Maybe not for others, but probably for me. Like, I grew up in Ohio just, uh, like, you know— My parents have uh, some, like, you know, houses that they're landlords for, you know, and my grandparents. So I always grew up over the summer, you know, renovating and cleaning out houses and, like, patching walls and painting and, like, you know, doing that. So it's kind of grounding. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's good. It's kind of like mundane work that you can keep your mind off anything and you know distract yourself and just say well this is normal
0: um so when did you see the movie for the first time was it at the premiere
1: no it wasn't at the premiere it was um i want to i i don't really remember i i think it was maybe september of uh, this year a while ago yeah it was a while ago steven and disney and uh christy flew the five of us ariana david rachel ansel and i out there to go and do a screening of the film and then we were going to do a little bit of uh press uh pre-press stuff
0: yeah and how I, okay sorry go ahead no no no
1: go ahead i, I was just gonna I just say w- we saw wondering it. wondering
0: what the feeling was
1: it was it was awful it was an awful feeling because <laughs> <laughs> this is what happened right we're on like the fox lot and we're in the zanuck theater which is a pretty big theater and there's only five of us in it <laughs> Yeah. And, like, you know, you're just nervous. Uh, You're just so nervous. And I think you have, like, I don't know, expectations or whatever. And the movie ends and the lights come up and you're kind of sitting in silent. Uh, Because I don't know if you know this, but it's a tragedy.
0: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It starts off so fun, too, you know?
1: (laughs) So you're just sitting in silent and then all of a sudden you hear from the back of the theater. So what'd you guys think? And it's Steven and Tony and Christy. And you're like, God, what is wrong with you people? Like, <laughs> can't you guys give us a minute to process this? This like,
0: happens for press every time we see something. There's always someone—it's not usually Steven Spielberg, but someone's always like, so, what'd you think? And you need a second, right? You need
1: a minute. You just need a minute, you know? It's like—it uh, was wild. And uh, so I didn't know what to say, and and everyone's talking really lovely about the film, and I, and I was just in such a state of— um, shock, I guess, and Mm -hmm. trying to, like, Mm -hmm. figure it all out and process it, uh, where the only thing I could (laughs) say to them at the time was, you know... Making this movie was such a joy. I really forgot that it was a tragedy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you also you're kind of not in the like. You're the sad part starts after you're gone. No spoilers for life story. It's just West like story, all but, you know. downhill
1: from there. It really, <laughs> it really is. is. It comes <laughs> crashing so hard. But and, but yeah. I, they obviously sensed. I think the uh that and the the inability to process and and see the film. Actually see the film. Uh, yeah. So the next day, uh, Chris. Christy called and was like, hey, do you want to see the movie again? And my gut instinct was, oh, God, do I have to? And mm. uh, she was like, but, you know, everyone else is going to see it. And I was like, well, OK. Yeah. No, like, OK, OK, OK. So we're back in the theater. It's all of us again. And I think we just all had that mindset this time of like, OK, we got that out of the way. Let's watch the movie now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, having done that, then you're able to, like, really see what this film is and it's um i don't know it's great and it gets even better the more you watch it as i found uh and especially in a in a theater setting with uh with people there that's yeah. it's really important yeah
0: yeah did you can you watch like tonight or other scenes that you're not in oh, and I, enjoy i can them only better? really
1: watch scenes that i'm not in
0: <laughs> <laughs> sounds right to me yeah 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 I mean, as a stage actor, it's such a weird thing, right, to be able to do something and, you know, clips of Dear and Hansen exist. But it's like such a totally different way to think of your own performance. Like, I don't know. Do Do other people advise you on how to make that adjustment in terms of thinking of your own performance as being immortalized in this one take and you have to watch it forever?
1: Well, I mean, I think they try to say don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> if you can avoid watching it, you should. <laughs> For me, this was such a uh, an important uh, like landmark just personally and just in my life that I'm like and I'm sitting next to my mom or like my sister and I'm like, just uh, like suck it up and watch the movie. Like it's not yeah. about you, you idiot. You know what I mean? <laughs> like watch the movie. Get over yourself kind of a thing, you know? <laughs> so, you know, you do and you end up enjoying it and it's all good.
0: Yeah, you said something when um, talking to The Times earlier this year about something else that, like, what you had seen making West Side, you can't unsee. And I couldn't totally piece out what that meant. Like, obviously, it's a you know huge kind of movie to make. But, like, what was it particularly about making it that, like, that you can't unsee? I think,
1: look, for Steven and Tony and all of us making this movie, it really was beyond a privilege. It was, uh, I like the word that Tony uses. We were, um, stewards of this Mm -hmm. material. I think for us, we really felt like we were a part of something that was much bigger than ourselves. And, uh, when you're a part of something like that, um, it's just an amazing feeling and, uh, you can't help but, uh, Remember, like, why you got into all this all in the beginning, like, why you wanted to be an actor or do any mm. of this, and it was a, it was a real reminder, I think, for myself personally of what I want to, at least feel and and do, you know, with. Uh, mm-hmm career quote unquote you know what i mean <laughs> whatever that is i mean we're play pretend for a living so like yeah. you know that's ridiculous in itself <laughs> but because of that uh, that is what it is and it's like it's a that's a real privilege like i really feel like we're the lucky ones to uh, yeah. be able to pursue you know I, not everybody gets the the ability to pursue work that's joyful all the time. And you know, and we don't always either, but we still are, you know, doing something that we love. And I just feel like because of that, there's a real responsibility that goes along with that. Mm-hmm. There's a real responsibility like responsible filmmaking, responsible storytelling, um and uh you got to do it right and uh and it has to come from the place of like love for what you do. Uh mm-hmm. if it if it comes from some other place I always say if it you should always do stuff from love, not for love. Mm. And that's like there's a big difference.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: There's a huge difference. And uh that's what I meant, I think, when I was saying that. It's like I I kinda like, you know. Was shaken in my in my where I stood, uh, working with Steven and Tony and everyone, the whole cast, uh, the Jets, everyone working on this and and having that very visceral reaction and making this and realizing like. You got you got to you got to set a new precedent for yourself, Mike.
0: Yeah, cuz there's like a treadmill as an actor, right? Where you're trying to make your way and you, you get you're offered a job, you take a job and you kind of like just keep going to build up to something. So is it like you do something like this and it's like you're spoiled for not just being able to take any job. Like you get to you've seen what it can be like, so you
1: can't go back. Exactly. And people want to say like thank you to Steven Spielberg, but I kind of say like screw you, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> How
3: Dare you.
1: <laughs> you know, it's like ah You've yeah. you've shown me things, you know, know. And, or just like you know, allowed me the room to like uh, uh, realize for myself what I personally <laughs> maybe needed, uh, you know, and so, yeah, it's that. It's just like you can't unsee what you've seen.
0: Yeah, uh, I want to talk about the jets in this movie, and I have been crediting a lot of the way that they evolve in this to tony kushner and i'm interested in how it looked like looked like from your end because there's that early scene after the um the opening number with lieutenant shrank where he's kind of lecturing the jets and the sharks and then there's this like okay but we're the white guys and it's us against everybody else and it it reframes the way that this group of people i felt like i knew very well function and it linked it so directly to the present day what were the conversations like that for you? What was what was the adaptation of the Jets to, I think, look a lot—a little bit more like the white grievance that we're familiar with today in this, you know, old story?
1: I mean, you know, you don't have to do much uh, in order for that just to, like, come across. And we're not really, like, I think— uh changing the material all that much from the original west side story it's uh, you know it's always just kind of been there and i think if you just lay the backdrop of america on on that then it's Mm -hmm. always like that's what it is you know it's not uh (laughs) you know like it just is what it is and 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 i think um i think that's what makes this story just so special is that um you, we'll will be able to tell this story over and over again and keep, hopefully keep West Side Story alive for further generations. Um, hopefully it evolves, right? And, mm-hmm. wh- you know, I think a big part of... I think a big part of the difference in the 57 musical to the 61 movie to this production to other revivals that we've done is just uh, human evolution. Like, now we have the language. Mm. For to like describe kind of what these things were, like the character Mm -hmm. Anybody's existed, yeah, their name was Anybody's,
0: (laughs) yeah, (laughs) that was there. You know what I mean? The pronoun aspect of it that is fascinating, you know what I
1: mean? Like it was there, we just have like the language for it now, um, because we've evolved as uh, a society and we have like have had these conversations. Um, And so as we continue to evolve and have other conversations, you know, you just, timeless material will be able to mirror society wherever that is then. And that just kind of keeps going on and on and on.
0: So do you feel like your riff is the same riff that has always been there? Or do you you see him as a different person this time?
1: Yes and no. I mean, like, at the end of the day, the Rust Hamblin riff or whomever, you know, has played that role before, the backdrop still exists. Like, yeah. Tony went away to prison. He's back. He doesn't want to fight. Riff ha- wants to get him to join the family again. And then, like, you know, there's tension between that. Yeah. Like, that's always kind of been there. We're just, like explaining it a little bit more, you know, in, in, a, in a tasteful way for an audience. Um, it's still the Mercutio character. It's still fun. It's still mm. um, complicated. It's still, like, loving. Uh, and it's still, like, gross, you know, too. Like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, you know, there, there's not—I I don't really see— much of a difference other than like like I said, I think now we just have kind of the language for maybe what they didn't at the time. Like West well Side at that time when it first came out, it wasn't a huge success because it was ahead of its time. I think yeah. what beat the 57 musical for the Tonys was the music band. Good
0: good musical. Can't argue with it. Just different.
1: <laughs> Very different. Yeah. But you know, I, I think that explains a lot too of where we kind of work.
0: Yeah. There's so much backstory in the scene that, as far as I know, is completely new where Riff's trying to buy the gun. Um, and there's the guy at the bar who, like, knew his dad. And, like, there's a lot of implied history that isn't entirely on screen. Do you, is that history specific? Is that something you talked about? Or is that something you could kind of work out in your own head? Is there a story there?
1: No, there's definitely a story there. You know, there was, there's the story of what Tony Kushner and I had, you know, talked about was that, uh, Riff's dad wasn't around. I mean, yeah. he was around. He's he's not there. He didn't raise this kid. And really? uh, maybe he was this figure in the neighborhood. Um, but, like, not a great figure. But definitely someone that people... Like, he was that. Um, and Riff's mom died very yeah. early on. And um, really, they were, you know... Tony and Riff were just orphans. And they were just, like trying to make their way, and they found all these other kids who were in similar situations, and they were just looking out for each other uh, because there was no one else looking out for them. Um, And so there's definitely darker elements to it, but that's kind of true with any gang, you know? It's always from lower-income neighborhoods, people that don't have opportunities. And so when a group comes along and says, well, we'll take care of you, you know, people people jump at that.
0: Yeah. Well, there's the heartbreaking added layer in this, I think, of, you know, these two gangs are fighting each other. But the real bad guy, if you want to find one, it's like Robert Moses and the people who are just transforming the city and making no room for anybody. And they can't see it like they're they're not able to see to that extra level, which makes the whole thing more heartbreaking.
1: Absolutely. What they don't what the Jets don't realize, what Riff and the Jets don't realize is that they've already lost the war. Yeah, it's done. Their, Their homes are gone. They're just—they just haven't left yet, you know. Yeah. And um, everything is changing, and it's—it's it's really that—that that inability to recognize change, accept it, um, and and uh, cope cope with it and deal with it. I I always have kind of like said on this press tour that we're doing that the relationship between Tony and Riff is like Tony's coming home for Thanksgiving uh like, like here's this guy who deeply wants to change he deeply wants to be different and he comes back home to the lion's den where he was born uh the person who he was and uh, he's trying to be a different person in that environment, and you simply can't do that. And yeah. whatever that role that Tony was for Riff, um, the inability to love Tony enough to accept his wanting to change, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, 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 that's, that's where all that friction and that, that uh, betrayal uh, comes from.
0: Yeah. And you don't judge them for it, even though, as you're saying, there's some gross motivations for it. Like that's the kind of the miracle of this movie is that it's a well,
1: it's because you know, we all do it.
0: all in there. But yeah, it's but it's not it's it's human rather than being, you know, standing in for something like a bigger picture idea. It's just, of course. Like,
1: it's yeah. This person. Yeah. And well, and look, I think what it does very uh, wisely is just to examine the why of it all. Yeah. If, if you could get to the why of it all, then you can hopefully understand a little bit more. Um, and hopefully maybe have a little bit more empathy because at the end of the day, like, you know, we only have control over what we have control over Mm -hmm. and you can, you know, try to, uh, I don't know, but uh, you know, it's one of those, I think it's keeping that in mind of like, I have control over what I have control over and Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I can maybe make this much of a difference or this one, depending on my environment and my situation. Yeah. And, uh, and Tony's situation, like. He's not going to be able to change Riff. Yeah. He can change himself, but he's got to get the hell out of there. Like, he can't—he's yeah. not going to be able to change Riff. And that's heartbreaking.
0: You're making me think about that sad ending again. It's uh, against <laughs> you. Um, okay, So filmmaking and storytelling is something I kind of get how to see the differences in. But choreography is not something I know anything about. And I've been trying to figure out, like, what is the Justin Peck choreography that's different from the Jerome Robbins choreography? Where do they meet in the middle? And you're doing so much of it. I wondered if, like, if you can walk it through. Like, what's the— what is the change in choreography? What is Justin Peck doing here to, to make it different? I
1: don't know what he does. Cause <laughs> I, honestly, like I don't know enough about dance myself to like get into the nitty-gritty of like Justin's language. And like yeah. Okay, so Justin has his beautiful partner, Patricia Delgado, and is also a um, uh, collaborator and assistant, uh, Craig Salstein, on this project. And basically, Justin's, like, language is a- actually the movement. And mm-hmm. the way he, like, talks and describes the movement, it's so visual and, like, slow and methodic and, like, thoughtful. And it, it, for someone like me, then I'm like, I have no idea. So it is <laughs> it is the language divide that we kind of had. Um, mm-hmm. And and really, like, Pat, Patricia, does such an amazing job of, uh, I think, translating what Justin is saying. Like, into, you know?
0: into English language. <laughs>
1: or at least into, like, you know, I mean, it really is about, like, okay, your language... As the dancer in my language, as the actor, have to like merge and collide in this thing. And uh, that was really like the alchemy of it all and trying to like yeah. figure out, you know, how do we tell the story through the movement and like continue that moving forward and just like asking each other tough questions and challenging each other mm. in that way. And um, but I mean, Justin, I mean, I, I know what it feels like and what it looks like and it feels like soaring and like athletic Hmm. and it feels very uh, uh, machismo and like masculine and rough and like, I don't know, just so expressive in ways that, uh, and I feel like it looks a lot very similar in terms of that language. And maybe that's just because it's West Side Story, but it feels very in the vein of Jerome Robbins' oh, yeah. choreography. Um, and, and, I, and I think it's because it's coming from the place of where the story comes from. And Justin's done a really good job to, like, do something different but while obviously, like, you know, drawing from the past and, like, also making something new out of it all.
0: So is it—I mean, you've been dancing on stage for a long time. Like, is it really just so different from the dancing you've done before? Is it different from, like dance training have I haven't danced
1: in, like—when I auditioned for this, I hadn't danced in, like, over a decade.
0: <laughs> how do you leave something like that behind, though? Like, if you you know, if it's been part of your career before, like, how do you
1: just—how do you stop? I never thought of it as it being, like, something that was a part of my— My language. I always knew Mm. that acting was my thing. I always knew that, like, my language is acting and the writing and that. Storytelling, and I never felt like dance was a part of my storytelling. I loved it as a kid. It was definitely like my way in. I think, as being a young kid and needing to get energy out,
0: you know, kind of Uh one of those things. So it started with dance before acting? Like that was your. It did. And then
1: it got into like children's theater and like, you know, things like that. And I just, you know, I think for like, honestly, uh, I think being a a guy (laughs) and like somewhat of a decent dancer. Uh, they're kind of just like, yeah, OK, come on. We he raises your in stock. Those. They want yeah. you. Like, and everyone says like, you know, everyone has said like, well, Mike was in Newsies. He's a dancer. I pushed sets in Newsies. Like, let's get it real. You know, I understudied Jeremy Jordan and then I pushed sets. Like, let's let's be honest. Let's call it what it was.
0: But gracefully,
1: graceful set. Very pushing. graceful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. So, but so, it, it, I hadn't. Yeah. So I hadn't like danced, and I was very nervous about all of that, and and I really struggled with it. And it was um, the kindness and patience and uh, uh, the pushing that came from Justin and Pat to really work with me. I, I feel like to get me up to snuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess there's dancing in Dear Evan Hansen, but it's really no. different from what you're
1: doing now. I mean, it's like boys in a basement, like, you know, listening to Pearl <laughs> Jam or something. Like, that's what that is, you know? <laughs> Yeah,
0: I was um, I was looking at a, a piece that was about you um, when Dear Evan Hansen was running, and you were like getting recognized on the subway and like kind of going through this really intense spotlight period. And I'm curious about what it has been like, I guess, between that you leaving that show and this coming out, and it came out a year and a half after we all thought it would. So that this long wait of going from kind of blinding white attention, how does it feel coming kind of coming back into visibility in that way? Are you glad you got the break from it? Are you maybe yeah, more ready I'm for it than you, than you were last time? No,
1: I'm so happy that I had. Uh, a break um, from that you know I mean what's hard about I think the zeitgeist at that time with uh, Dear Evan Hansen was um, I had to go to work and do the show that night so Mm -hmm. like you know I'd be walking around and it just felt uh, like a lot (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. what I mean (laughs) because the the show really uh, impacted people Uh, In a very uh, uh, visceral way. And so they would, um, it was all coming from like a a place of like needing, needing to express what's, what it meant for them, which is all really lovely. But I never felt like I could, I I, I never felt like I, 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 it felt very, I guess, draining to, to allow that to come into It's a lot my of emotional sphere. energy yeah. to
0: process, and, yeah. and
1: it's not. I don't know. I mean, maybe that sounds like kind of whatever, dickish or something like that. But <laughs> it, ultimately, it was like, well, at the end of the day, I look. At the end of the day, I always felt like there's a magic to what we do, uh, especially in the theater. Like, we're doing this this uh, magic trick.
3: Yeah,
1: <laughs> and. Uh, when the show's over, the show's over. And uh, then I'm going to go home and I got to
3: mm-hmm.
1: be Mike and, like, go to bed and get ready for tomorrow and do it all over again. And uh, I always felt that if you interacted with me after the show, uh, it would kind of, I always felt like I would, I would maybe ruin their experience.
0: Mm-hmm. By not... Like sitting behind, behind the curtain. curtain.
1: Yeah, but not, like, living up to whatever their expectation may be because I'm not that, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, like let's keep the magic alive a little bit by yeah. like let, letting it exist in that sphere and vice versa, you know? Because yeah. at the end of the day, like I, I really the most important thing, at least for myself or, or uh, what I feel like an actor can do is to just protect their headspace because they mm-hmm. have to show up and they have to do the job and like they cannot care what other... What's going through the audience's mind because that's, they are allowed to have that co creation with the material. But at the yeah. end of the day, like, we have to just do our job so they can have that co creation. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have to kind of be separate, in my personal opinion. Maybe, yeah. maybe I'm wrong, but at least for me, that's the case. Yeah.
0: Has there been a headspace to protect around West Side Story since you wrapped it like two years ago and waiting? Or is the work done and now coming out, it's like a, different work I no
1: it, it's that it's exactly that the work's done I did yeah. that three years ago, <laughs> I don't know. Three years ago. <laughs> no. God. like I did that three years ago and I was like cool it's um, incredible how long that is yeah you know and I was like I did that yeah I did that then and so what's nice is is that I don't have to show up and go to work and do the show with all yeah. of this stuff and people you know Oh whatever, and and it's all lovely, which is and it's not it's not like I said it's not about ah, uh, people are it's not like oh well people said something nasty to me and so therefore <laughs> like oh, I'm not gonna perform that's not what it is it's really about yeah. just like staying grounded and focused so you can continue to do the work but what's great is that I don't have to do the job.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's done. It's going to live forever.
1: Yeah, and people could say, you know, whatever. I, I don't get on the internet or read any of it because um, I'm still, you know, in self-preservation and that's just how I operate and am. Um, but I think it's really important to, like, be able to continue to, you know... What, what, there's some comedian that said, like... If you can't ride the bus anymore, then you can't like do your job or something
0: like. That, <laughs> that probably sounds about right. And it's
1: kind of I like. I believe in that, you know, to a degree, you know, I really do.
0: Um, all right, I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna ask you one last very specific question. In the opening number, first time we see Riff, it's coming out of a construction vehicle with a girl. Does he live in that thing, or is that just like a uh, like a handy hideout? <laughs> it really feels like it could go either way. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, that's his fort. It's uh... <laughs> <laughs> a great fort. <laughs> I think it's just—I uh, think it's just uh, uh, the closest private spot that the two of them could probably find.
0: When you're living in rubble, you gotta use, yeah, what, you use can. what
1: you got. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. We'll continue having episodes throughout the holidays. Um, hopefully, you will all be right along with us and enjoying it. Um, in the meantime, you can find us at Vanity Fair, writing about all of the stuff that we discussed today. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard Ryan Laws and Rebecca. And David had to leave us, but he is at David Canfield ninety seven. Uh, you can also text us at subtext. Go to joinsubtext.com littlegoldmen or text 917-809-7096. We would love to hear what you're watching over the holidays and, um, you know, ask us your burning questions. We'll do our best to answer them. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Bukes.
5: And this week's award for the best dream that Katie Rich had recently goes to Katie Rich.
0: Snoop Dogg was there.